we all know the idiom, practice what you preach, right? We all know that idiom. It's a common phrase. And there are few things that are more frustrating in the world than someone saying one thing and then directly contradicting the very thing that they just said by their actions. And, you know, that, that phrase, practice what you preach, increasingly resonates with us as we live in a world and a culture that seems to be hypocritical at every turn. You know, I came across some humorous examples in the professional world of some of the many ways Americans fall short of practicing what they preach. So here's a few of the ones I found. Uh, So last year, I sat through a training seminar. It was multiple hours long. It was not the most engaging seminar in the world, but it was a seminar uh, by IT security instructors talking about how to make sure uh, that all of your technology is secure. For multiple hours, they gave example after example of how uh, it's so imperative to have uh, security systems on all of your technology. And one of the things that they kept saying time and time again was that you need to be changing all of your passwords regularly. Well, I found an anonymous survey by IT security instructors that 50% of them admitted that they've never changed their password even once. They didn't practice what they preach. Here's one of my other favorites. There's a group of professional ethicists. How they got these guys together, I have no idea. But an ethicist is someone who comes up with what's ethical, right? That's what they talk about. And they were being polled, and 60% of these ethicists believed that eating red meat was morally bad behavior for a variety of ethical reasons. Okay, agree or disagree with that as you wish. But here's the funny part. 27% of the same group said that they regularly abstain from eating red meat. That means that half of them said, this is immoral, but give me the Big Mac anyway, right? It's like, okay, you're not quite practicing what you preach. Here's another ironic study. In 2007, uh, a nationwide physician health study found that over 63% of American physicians are either overweight or obese, right? And that those are the professionals that are most of the time telling us diet and exercise are the most important things. Or how about this one? How about this one? There was a study done on divorce rates by 440 different professions. So essentially, they took these different professions and said, uh, professions and said, what's the divorce rate for this profession? And then they averaged out all of the averages. So the average across the board was 17% divorce rate, Okay. Now, there were obviously some that had much higher and some that had lower, but 17%. What would you imagine that marriage therapist divorce rates would be? Probably lower than 17%. It was actually 23%, 6% higher, right, than the average. People don't practice what they preach. And you know, I'm sure that we could all go on with thousands of examples of how we see this in everyday life. And there is no profession, there's no person that is immune from not practicing what they preach. But here's the problem. The temptation to act like a hypocrite is not just contained to our, uh, to our occupations, right? This can bleed over very quickly into the spiritual realm as well. Scripture is replete with examples of people who are acting like spiritual hypocrites or warnings against spiritual hypocrisy. Much of the New Testament emphasizes that our walk needs to match our talk, that our beliefs need to match our behavior. We need to resist the temptation to be whitewashed tombs who are outwardly admirable but inwardly decaying. 
And you know, I, I think that's a needed message for us to hear because there's a lot of times where it's very tempting to nurture this dichotomy. And what might that look like in our lives? Well, you know, it's, it's the pastor who can wax eloquently on Sunday morning about trusting in God's sovereignty and provision in all things and then sits at home uh, overcome with anxiety and fear of everything that's coming on the horizon all throughout the rest of the week. It's the man or woman who sits through a sermon on sexual purity, taking copious notes only to go home and thoughtlessly return to indulging sexual impurity in their lives. It's the older Christian who has been attending church for decades and you know what? They know all the Christian buzzwords, they know all the lingo, but they use that to mask a contentious, angry, complaining, bitter spirit. And they look religious because they have the right words, but they don't bear any spirit in, or fruit of the spirit in their lives. It's the Christian young person who rolls out of bed habitually on Sunday mornings to go worship the Lord after partying all weekend with no cognitive dissonance that there's an incompatibility between those two actions. It's the G180 student who gives all the right Bible answers in small group but then violates all those answers by the way that they act at school, talk on their sports teams, or snap their friends. And if we're being honest tonight, there's a level of spiritual hypocrisy that all of us have in our lives. Uh, all of us have somewhat of a dichotomy between our beliefs and our behaviors. And, and this is a battle that I face every single day. Because if one thing I know is true, it's a lot easier to say the right things. It's a lot easier to believe the right things than to live out the right things. And as we continue in the book of Colossians tonight, our passage is going to deal directly with the topic of spiritual hypocrisy. In Colossians 1, 9-14, Paul shares the content of his continual prayer for the Colossian believers. And through these verses, one theme emerges. He says, I'm praying for you to walk in a, a manner worthy of the Lord. He's praying for no dichotomy to exist between their beliefs and their behaviors. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read verses 9-14 through 14 together. Here's what Paul writes. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, a manner that's fully pleasing to him, so that you can bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious night, might for all endurance and patient with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins." You know, as we look at this passage, it's kind of long. And in the original language, Paul has a thing for run-on sentences. And this is all one sentence. So it's one really, really, really long run-on sentence. And if you identify the main verb, the main point, it's this. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So if we were to summarize our big idea tonight, it's very simple. It's this. Walk your talk. Walk your talk. And that's what this prayer is for. That we would walk our talk. And as he supplies in verse 10 this ultimate purpose that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, with the rest of these verses around verse 10, he, he shows what it looks like to have a life where the gospel permeates not just our heads but also our hearts. 
He wants all of our attitudes, our affections, and our actions to reflect the example of Christ in our lives. And to walk our talk, we're going to look at three principles for how we can do that. We need to pay, pray passionately, we need to fill up frequently, and we need to cultivate consistently. That's the three things we're going to see. But let's start with our first, our first principle. We need to pray passionately. We need to pray passionately. You know, we need to recognize that this entire passage is one large prayer that Paul says he is regularly praying over the Colossian church. Now, throughout Paul's letters, prayer is always one of the lead characters. Some of the most beautiful and rich promises that we have in the entire New Testament come from Paul's prayers that he has recorded for us. Prayer is a central aspect of Paul's apostolic ministry, but also his personal relationship with the Lord because he understands the transformative power of prayer. For Paul, prayer is not just a time to rehearse Christian cliches. Prayer is not a uh, mechanical spiritual activity that he just mindlessly goes through. It's not an obligation that he does out of guilt. Instead, Paul sees prayer as a powerful instrument of spiritual change in his life and really the lives of other people as well. Paul rightly understands that sanctification is fueled by God's transforming grace and because of that, he understands that he can preach the perfect sermon. He can have the perfect Bible verse on the tip of his tongue. He can say the right words with wisdom and eloquence. But if the Spirit's not at work in someone's heart, it does nothing. It accomplishes nothing. God alone supplies the growth. And the deeper that we understand that reality, the more it's going to drive us to the throne room of God in humble prayer of dependence. Prayer is powerful and the only thing that can truly change us. Paul understands that Jesus, not Paul, is the Savior and the Sanctifier. So if we want to walk the talk, then we have to get used to the idea of praying passionately. Like Paul, we need to realize that we will never be able to walk the talk if we try to rely on our own strength instead of God's grace. We need to passionately pray for God to do a transformative work in our hearts that we could never accomplish on our own. You know, I honestly believe that this is one of the most important lessons that we can take away from the book of Colossians. Now, I know that's a bold assertion, but let me explain why. You know, I... I really think that the greatest uh, chink in the Christian armor in modern day America is the area of prayer. You know, if we're being honest tonight, I imagine that many of us would admit that our prayer lives are oftentimes a little bit more lethargic than life-giving, and they're a little bit more distracted than devoted. You know, I, I don't know about you, but when I read of the rich prayers of the Psalms or the Apostles or Jesus' prayer life, or I think about the disciples' prayer lives, there's a little bit of a, a pang of guilt and conviction in my heart when I look at my rushed moments with the Lord and my sometimes rehearsed moments of, of prayer that I just walk through. I'm convinced that lack of passionate prayer is what holds many of us back from really growing as we should in the Lord and also seeing revival uh, spiritually throughout our culture and, and our nation. So what holds us back? Why don't we pray as we ought to pray? You know, I'm sure that there are thousands of answers to that question. But tonight, I want to zoom in on just one. And here it is. I think a lot of us 
have overconfidence in our own strength. I think we have overconfidence in our own strength. It's one, overconfidence is one of the most sizable obstacles to passionate prayer in our lives. In our pride, we overconfidently assess our own power and strength. Prayer radiates from a heart that's truly God-dependent. The more that we understand our utter powerlessness, the more we are desperately going to cling to the throne room of God and asking for his transforming power. Our pride and self-reliance are major obstacles to the prayer lives that we desire. A prideful person will never be a prayerful person. I mean, to quote Corey ten Boone, a prideful person will always treat prayer like a spare tire rather than the steering wheel of their lives. And that just makes sense. I mean, just think about it. We'll never pray to God to supply our daily bread when we think that we're the real breadwinners of our lives. We'll never pray for God to give us a surpassing peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of trials when we think that we can figure out how to move past anxiety if we just put a little more thought, a little more effort, and a little more of our own wisdom into the equation. We will never pray for God's sanctifying work to course through our spiritual veins when we believe that sanctification is something that we accomplish fully on our own through just pure grit and determination. We'll never pray for God to lead us away from temptation when we pridefully think that we can surround ourselves with temptation and not give in to sin. We'll never think to pray for God to save and sanctify other people when we're not living out the greatest commandment to love God and love others in our lives, but in reality, our lives reflect that we love ourselves. Those subtle seeds of self-reliance and pride will grow to choke out any prayer in our lives. Until we humbly recognize how desperately we need Jesus every, in every single sphere of our lives, we're never going to have the prayer lives that we so desire. So a lot of people wonder, what's the key to passionate prayer? And I really think it all begins with an acknowledgement that I need Jesus. I can't do this on my own. And that humble desperation for Christ will fuel prayers of adoration, of confession, of thanksgiving, of gratitude, of, of all sorts in our lives. We have to accept how desperately we need a moment-by-moment transfusion of Jesus transforming grace in our lives. And that really brings us to our second principle tonight. If we're going to walk the talk, we need to pray passionately. But second of all, we need to fill up frequently. And we see that in the second part of verse 9. We need to fill up frequently. Look at what Paul says. He says, I pray that the Colossian believers would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now that's kind of the the literal wording of the ESV, but I want to provide a, a paraphrase that I think captures the thought a little bit more clearly. Paul is saying, I'm praying for the Colossian believers to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's will so that the Holy Spirit can actively work in their hearts to expand their knowledge and wisdom in Christ-like living. And I think that wording is helpful because then we identify the agent who's doing the filling. When it says be filled, we're wondering, well, who's going to fill us up? And the answer in the text that's implied is the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled by the Spirit. And this verse is paradigmatic to our spiritual growth because Paul is teaching us that 
authentic spiritual growth is not just achieved, but it's really received by the Spirit working in our lives. And that was a message that the Colossian believers desperately needed to hear. Because there were all sorts of dangerous heresies floating around their region at this time. In Colossians, Paul is very clearly confronting some sort of Christological heresy, some type of legalism, a works-based understanding of salvation and sanctification. And this false religious system was teaching that it's through legalism or rituals or a complex system of, of passwords and secret initiations that truly unlock spiritual growth and truly unlock a deeper experience of God. God's presence in your life. And Paul was really abhorred by this false teaching. These heretical teachers were moving the focus of the Christian life from Christ to legalistic rituals. They replaced transforming grace with rigid adherence to man-made rules. They cared more about rules and conforming to their rules than intimacy with Jesus and spiritual worship. They viewed spiritual growth as something that they could achieve entirely on their own rather than a gift that's received by opening up their hearts to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In summary, they'd become so fixated on the process that they had lost sight of the person. They transformed the spiritual disciplines from a means of God's transforming grace into an end in and of themselves. And you know, that's the same problem that the Pharisees had in the gospel accounts as well. The Pharisees were outwardly exemplary of their obedience to the law. They didn't just follow the uh, 500 plus commands of the Mosaic law. They took it upon themselves to add thousands of extra rules and rituals as well. And following those externally, they did a great job. And they believed that they were earning God's favor. They believed that they were maturing quicker than everybody else. They believed that they had infallible wisdom and knowledge of Scripture. They believed that they were the ones who were being filled with the wisdom of God's will. And they believed that they were walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. But what do we know from Jesus' teaching? They couldn't have been more wrong. The Gospels continually point out the deficient understanding of legalism. Uh, rigid adherence to those uh, rituals didn't unlock a deeper sense of the Lord's will. No, I mean, just think of what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3. He's explaining the gospel to them, to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is saying, how can these things be? And what's Jesus' reply? He says, are you the teacher, the preeminent teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Essentially, Jesus is saying, you're the number one guy and you're really this spiritually dull? <laughs> How do you not get this? I think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 as well, where he says, you know, I got to tell you, your righteousness is going to have to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or you're never going to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus also in Matthew 28 or 23 uh, says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're, you're hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're outwardly beautiful, but within you're full of dead bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Legalism didn't bring spiritual growth. Legalism didn't bring spiritual maturity. Legalism does not bring salvation. Legalism only brings pride, hypocrisy, blindness, 
and ultimately death. Legalism is a, a lethal poison uh, to our spiritual lives. So why is that an important concept for us to grasp? Why do we need to understand that? Because when we use the verbiage, walk the talk, where do our minds immediately oftentimes go to? Doing religious things. We're just kind of pre-programmed. We jump right to that. We always jump to checking the boxes and doing religious things. For many of us, legalism is like driving a car on the interstate that's out of alignment. Have you ever driven a car that's out of alignment? What happens every time you start to take your hand off the wheel for even a second? You immediately start drifting that same direction every single time. I feel like in our spiritual lives, a lot of us do that. When we're not focused on grace and we start taking our hands off the spiritual wheel just a little bit, we'll always start drifting right towards legalism. That's just where we go. We go towards this works-based understanding of salvation and sanctification. For many of us, when we're not vigilant, we automatically drift that direction. We begin to focus on the process of Christianity over the person of Christ. We begin to focus on checking boxes over cultivating intimacy. We begin to focus on outward conformity instead of inward transformation. We begin to talk more about obligation and less about grace. We begin to see our faith as a quid pro quo where I do things in order to receive blessings and the things I want from God. And you know, I'll be honest with you tonight. I, I hate how easily my heart can drift towards legalism. I hate how it can be easy for me to get caught up in the processes and practice of Christianity so much so that I lose sight of the person and work of Christ. I hate that I can consume vast quantities of theology without being moved to vast quantities of worship. And this passage reminds me, Andrew, you have to love theos, God, more than you love theology, the study of God. Andrew, you have to crave intimacy with Christ more than you crave information about Christ. Andrew, you have to humbly view the Spirit as the architect of your sanctification and spiritual growth instead of pridefully viewing yourself in that role. Which brings us to an important question. How are we spiritually filled? So if we need to be filled re regularly, how are we spiritually filled? How does God fill us with his Holy Spirit who alone can bring knowledge of his will and a deeper understanding of our relationship with Christ? Let me answer that question with a little bit of a word picture. I think that being spiritually filled is like getting a tan during the summer. So let me explain what I mean by that. Just, just think, think about getting a, a tan, a suntan. Uh, so after a long Wisconsin winter, my skin becomes this pasty color I affectionately call Wisconsin white, right? So I'm, I'm Wisconsin white, and the on only solution for my pasty color is to spend a lot of time in the sun. S sadly, I can't just simply wish that I was tan and boom, all of a sudden I'm tan. I can't go out and purchase a tan unless I want to look like a carrot, right? Like this just doesn't work. I can't just magically become tan. All I can do is place myself in an environment that's conducive to getting a tan. I put myself under the sunlight and allow the ultraviolet rays to gradually change my skin pigment from Wisconsin white to a much nicer color. The, the sun does the work. I'm just responsible to place myself under its power. You know, I, I think that's how it works with the Holy Spirit in our lives as well. 
Spiritual growth happens as we place ourselves in environments that are conducive for the Spirit to work and to sanctify our hearts. And as we place ourselves, just like we place ourselves under the power of the sun's rays to get a tan, we also need to regularly place ourselves in the right conditions that are conducive for the Spirit to fill us, to sanctify us, and to illuminate our comprehension of the greatness of God. We receive spiritual growth when we place ourselves in the center of God's amazing grace. And that's why legalism is so powerless. Because legalism resists receiving grace. Legalism seeks good works and personal merit as the path to God's favor. Legalism is fueled by pride. However, true Christianity is fueled by humility. Rather than resisting grace, we beg for it. Rather than obeying to merit God's favor, we obey because we know through Christ we've been given God's favor already. Rather than pridefully comparing ourselves to others and thinking, hey, you know, I'm doing pretty good. We compare ourselves to the person of Christ and realize we have so far to go. Rather than seeing our good works as a way to prove ourselves to God, we see our good works as an opportunity to worship a Savior that we could never deserve. Now, I I probably belabored that point a little long, but, you know, I did so purposely because now I I want to address some of the ways that we can place ourselves in an environment that's conducive for God to bestow his transforming grace and his sanctifying spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And as I share this list, newsflash, none of these things are going to be groundbreaking or new. They're just simply not. Uh, These are what have historically been known as the spiritual disciplines, but I would prefer maybe the term means of grace. Scripture's chock full of these means of grace that allow the Spirit to work in our lives. Uh, Here's a partial list. Scripture reading, meditating and memorizing Scripture, prayer, studying, worship, using your spiritual gifts for the edification and the building up of the body of Christ, discipling others in their walk with Jesus, fasting, Silence and solitude, journaling, participation in the ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are God-ordained ways that we open ourselves up to the Spirit to work powerfully in our lives. However, that's why I first hit on the heart. Because we have to have the right heart that fuels these practices. Because you, you can go through, it, through prayer without being filled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? You can go through a time of Bible reading and journaling without being filled by the Holy Spirit because it all depends on your heart. If we have hearts that are overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus, if we have hearts that are desperate for fresh transfusions of God's sanctifying grace, if we have hearts that are relentlessly thankful for all that Jesus has accomplished in us and through us, then we can watch as these practices transform before our very eyes, from boxes to be checked, to visits with our Savior to be savored. I think that is why we should daily pray for God to overwhelm us with a deep sense of how radically we are loved in Christ and how amazing his grace is that he's bestowed on us. And as the Spirit continues to work in our lives to conform us more to the image of Christ, Paul, in the final verses, 10 through 14, and we'll go through those real quickly, He outlines some additional ways that we can continue to partner with the work of the Spirit in our lives. Here's our our third principle, our last principle tonight. We need to cultivate consistently. 
We need to cultivate consistently. In these verses, Paul says that walking in a manner worthy of the Lord means cultivating four types of of faith in our lives. We're to cultivate a fruitful faith, an intellectual faith, an enduring faith, and a thankful faith. So let me just quick show you each of those in this passage. First, he says, I I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. He says, and one of the, uh, one of the ways that you're going to see that is by bearing fruit in every good work. These are all participial phrases that show how we accomplish the work. So he says, I, w- I want you to bear fruit in every good work. So we need to cultivate a, a fruitful faith. To walk the talk, our faith needs to be producing healthy spiritual fruit. And when we look at the New Testament, that fruit is described in a variety of ways. Some of that is, is a, a transformed lifestyle. Uh, but primarily, we see in Galatians 5, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Someone who's loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, faithful, and self-controlled. We need to cultivate this fruit in our lives. Now, when you think about cultivating fruit, that's a really neat metaphor because it draws our attention to like cultivating a garden, right? So if you're to go out and garden, which, uh, you know, teach me your ways because our garden is here to, to do the West, so we weren't cultivating that well. But, you know, it's a, if you're cultivating a garden, uh, what is one thing that you need to regularly do if you're going to see fruit? You need to pluck the weeds, right? Because if weeds grow up in your garden, it's going to choke out your plants from producing good fruit. So I think in our lives, one of the ways that we make sure that we're going to have a fruitful faith is by regularly taking some time to walk through the garden of our hearts and look at our affections, our priorities, our actions, and say, what, what's, what's misaligned here? Where do I see sin and selfishness popping up that's starting to choke out the Spirit's work in my life? So that's the first one. We need to cultivate fruitful faith. Here's the second thing. He says, I want you to have an increase in the knowledge of God. You need to be increasing in the knowledge of God. We need to cultivate an intellectual faith. An intellectual faith. Now, if you know me at all, you know this is a passion of mine. I really hate the dichotomy that there's, uh, you can either be religious or intellectual and that faith is checking your brain at the door. I, I don't like that dichotomy at all. And scripture time and time again says that we need to cultivate an intellectual faith. Uh, We live in a time where the emotional side of Christianity is so stressed that sometimes I fear that we've lost the urgency to couple the emotions and experience with the study and the intellect. Both are essential. God desires for us to increase in our knowledge of him, of his son, of his gospel, of his glory, of his word. And the only way that we can do that is by spending time cultivating that intellectual side of our faith. Growing our knowledge and our understanding of theology and scripture is not a task that's reserved for pastors and theologians. As the author of Hebrews lamented, there's a lot of people who are should be spiritual teachers, but they're still infants in the faith who need spoon-fed because they've never learned to be self-feeding Christians. We need to learn to be self-feeding Christians. We need to cultivate a better knowledge of the Lord. And you know, here's the tragedy. We ultimately experience less enjoyment of God than we could have when we don't work out those intellectual muscles. The more we understand something, the more we enjoy it. 
Just think of an illustration. Recently, I've been wearing uh, around the office and around town a brewer's mask. Okay, that's been a, I stopped wearing my brewer's mask because I know nothing about baseball. I wore this mask because it was free. And people would come up to me and start talking about Brewers games. And I'd have to say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, this is all that. And I'm like, what in the world am I talking about right now? I have no idea. Like Wisconsinites just, you know, they see this and they assume you know every stat and statistic about the Brewers. I knew nothing. I don't like baseball at all. I don't. I watch it and I'm bored to tears. But one of the reasons is I never played baseball and I don't know what's going on well. All the pitches look the same to me. Someone will, you know, someone will, oh, did you see that? I'm like, no, it looked like the same last 80 pitches. I don't see any difference. You get far more enjoyment when you understand the intricacies and the sophistication of a system. The same is true in God, uh, of God. You're going to enjoy God far more when you can move past God is great. You know, if we can add some vocabulary there, you're going to enjoy God a little bit more. When we learn to be self-feeders, we're showing that there's so much more of God to be enjoyed than we could have even imagined. So application, it's time to go a little deeper. If you're going through a book right now in your personal study time, get a commentary and read it and open that up and say, you know what, I'm going to understand this book a little bit better. Maybe it's watching some good theology lectures on Right Now Media, which you can get through our church. Maybe it's attending one of our Sunday school classes that digs a little deeper. Maybe it's picking a theology book or a Christian, uh, solid Christian uh, teaching book and going through that with a group of friends. What's a way that you can go deeper? Paul continues on with a third way that we need to cultivate our faith. He says that we need to cultivate an enduring faith. He says, you are to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance means that you can with joy face unexpected trials in your life. Patience means that with joy you can face unexpected uh, oppression and mistreatment by others. So you have both people and trials in this instance. Now, I'm not going to spend any time on this point because this was really the focus of our Philippian series this summer. But essentially, Paul is saying that God desires for us to have a faith that can with joy confront trials and tribulations of any kind because our joy is centered on the person of Christ. And that brings us to one final attribute that we are to consistently cultivate. We're to cultivate a thankful faith. If we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, an essential ingredient is a heart of gratitude. And we have so much to be thankful for as Christ followers. So much. And the Lord wants us to regularly meditate on all the things that he has given to us in Christ. And in this passage, he gives us just three things that we can regularly meditate on and be thankful for. He qualified us for an inheritance. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he redeemed us and forgave us. He qualified us for an inheritance. That means that we were not qualified. (laughs) We didn't deserve an inheritance. It's like you were applying to go to uh, uh, maybe a a top Ivy League university and, and your application, the qualifications for admittance, you fell way short. And then the admissions counselor and said, we've waived all of the requirements and we're taking you in. That, that's essentially what it was. We weren't qualified. And through Jesus, he waived all the requirements. He waived all the qualifications. So now we're qualified to be children of God. A second thing that he says, he says, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. Apart from Christ, we weren't just, you know, a little rougher off. We were trapped 
in the domain of darkness. And that domain of darkness is sin. That domain of darkness is evil spiritual forces that are over this world that bring about all sorts of evil and depravity and brokenness. And Jesus says, you no longer belong to that domain. I've called you by name. I've given you a new identity. I couldn't help when I read of that, but think of the miners in Chile from a few years ago that were trapped underground for 69 days. I think it's the longest anyone's ever survived underground. They were in total darkness, trapped in this, in this mine for 69 days. And then they were delivered back to the land of the living, right? I think that's a picture of what this passage is saying. After being trapped in darkness for so long, we were brought into a domain of light. And then lastly, he says, you have been redeemed. You've been redeemed and forgiven. That word redeemed, redemption there, it's a really interesting word because we don't understand it quite as well as the first century audience would have. When they heard the word redemption, their minds would immediately go to the slave markets. And in the slave markets, a lot of these slaves were conscripted to be slaves because of debts that they couldn't pay. So when you couldn't pay a debt, you would become an indentured servant, essentially, until you could pay back the debt. And redemption is what they would say would happen when a debt was paid in full, and they were no longer in bondage any longer. And this passage reminds us that in Jesus, we have been redeemed from our sins. We were once enslaved to sin. We were in bondage to sin. We owed a an incalculable debt before God. And there's nothing that we could do to ever atone and have that sin forgiven. There's nothing we could do to earn our redemption. But Jesus came in and saw us in our broken states and he set us free and he paid the redemption price himself. So as we think about this passage tonight, beautiful passage, beautiful passage. I love this passage. We are to walk the talk. If we're going to walk the talk, we need to pray passionately. We, we desperately, we need to cultivate consistently and we need to fill up frequently. And I just wanted to give us an opportunity right now to practice the second part of that a little bit, that we need to pray passionately. This is a prayer. And I think one of the things that we don't do oftentimes enough is just spend some time praying to the Lord. But you know, I feel led to do this tonight as well. Maybe you're here tonight and the, the handout that you were given has the things we're going to be praying for. Uh, but I'll be honest, all of those only apply to someone who has a relationship with Christ. So maybe there's someone here tonight and when you walked in the doors, you, someone invited you, you were a guest, or, or maybe you've been coming for a while and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You haven't been set free from the domain of darkness. You've yet to be redeemed from your sins and your transgressions and your failures before the Lord. There's grace for you. There's grace for you. So maybe tonight you just need to respond and say, I want that grace. I'm ready to start walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And I want to have my sins forgiven. If that's you tonight, I would just encourage you now to bow your head and just pray to the Lord saying, you know, I've been living for myself for far too long. I've been chasing after sin. I've been chasing after all the things that this world has offered. I've been chasing after the things of the domain of darkness. And Father, I, I just, I want something more. I want you. I'm willing to trust in Jesus fully right now. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. I put my faith fully in Christ. He's my hope.
So if there's anybody here who's never done that and you want to, I, I encourage you to do that and have a relationship with the Lord. For the rest of us, as we've reflected on the beauty of the gospel message tonight, let it lead us to worship. And I just want us through the rest of our semester together in the book of Colossians to keep this, keep this with you and just make this our prayer. So what we're gonna do, we're gonna have, I'm just gonna read through each bullet point and pause for about 20, 30 seconds and allow you just to privately pray through that bullet point to the Lord. Maybe it's been a while since you've prayed and this is a little scary, that, that's okay. That's where we're gonna have a guided time. So we'll just, I'll read, you pray, and then I'll close in a word of prayer at the end. First, pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Just take a moment to pray for that. Next, pray that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Taking that even a little further, let's pray that we would live a life that's fully pleasing to Jesus. good work. And maybe that means confessing some of the weeds that need to be plucked out. Let's pray that we would be steadily increasing in the knowledge of our great God. pray that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience that we'd find our joy in Jesus. pray that you would with joy give thanks to your Father for qualifying, delivering, and redeeming you in Christ. Father, I don't know how we could walk through a text like this tonight without being completely humbled before you. As we are reminded that we were not walking in a manner worthy of you when you decided to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. In fact, you tell us that we were walking in the way of the world, that we had chosen to reject you and replace you with so many false gods. Father, we were lost in our sins and our trespasses. And yet you loved us enough to send Jesus to live the perfect life that we could never live, 
to die the death that we deserve to pay for our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God so that we could become new creations in Christ. And Father, I'll be the first to admit that the battle to not be a spiritual hypocrite is real every day. There's so many ways we fall short of our beliefs and our behaviors. There's many moments when we don't walk our talk. But Father, I pray that tonight we confess the areas that we're falling short and asking for a clean slate. And we ask for your transforming grace to help us look more like Jesus. Help us desire nothing more than to be conformed to the image of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We are honored and amazed at the way in which you've loved us. And I just pray that you illuminate our minds, that you open our hearts to receive your love and to receive your grace in new ways that lead us to being in awe of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.